The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. 2019 is, among other anniversaries, the year of Rembrandt. It marks 350 years since he died in Amsterdam, aged 63, and was buried in an anonymous rented grave, despite the great fame and esteem he'd achieved in his lifetime. This podcast is all about this extraordinary artist. Later, we speak to Jennifer Scott, the director of the Dulwich Picture Gallery in London, about the gallery's Rembrandt masterpiece, Girl at a Window, and its show, Rembrandt's Light, coming up this autumn. We also look at drawings and prints by Rembrandt in the British Museum with their curator, Alenka Horvatch. But this being about Rembrandt, there's no better place to start than at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. The museum has just unveiled its exhibition, All the Rembrandts in the Rijksmuseum, which, as its title suggests, brings together all the paintings and drawings and some 300 etchings by Rembrandt in the museum's collection. No other museum could do such a comprehensive show of his life and work from their own collection, covering his apprenticeship in Leiden, where he was born in 1606, to his move to Amsterdam in 1631 and the subsequent rise to fame, to his later years of financial ruin and personal scandal and tragedy. This year will also be the moment where the Rijksmuseum's most famous Rembrandt painting, The Night Watch, undergoes restoration for the first time in many years, in the full glare of the public, and later in the year is another mouth-watering blockbuster, Rembrandt Velasquez. Taco Dibbets is the Rijksmuseum's director, and he joins me on the line now. Taco, I'd like to begin by talking about the Night Watch, because something very special is happening with that painting this year, isn't it? Yes, in, this year we're starting the restoration of the Night Watch, um, and as the Night Watch is seen by over two and a half million people each year who travel to Amsterdam to the Rijksmuseum to see it, um, we decided that we should um, restore it in public. First of all, because the public um, has the right to know what happens with it, because it's world heritage, so everybody should know, and it belongs to everybody. And secondly, um, because I think for the restorers themselves, um, it's good to do it um, in situ, in um, uh, the Rijksmuseum, because otherwise there's always a pressure that it has to go back to the rooms. Um, because you can't, don't want to take it off view too long. And to do a restoration of this importance with the pressure of time um, would not be a good idea because the, the painting deserves all the attention um, it, it needs. And therefore, we decided to restore it in the rooms. Um, there's a large showcase built around glass showcase built around the painting. And first of all, we will do extensive research, basically making a map of um, of the painting, mapping it with scanning techniques and all different techniques to be able to determine what it is made of and which layers it is painted in. And that's right. And I mean, this is enormously advanced in recent years, isn't it? I was reading a, something that your conservator was saying about this sort of the way they can analyse the chemicals uh, in the painting now are so much more advanced than the last time it was restored, which I think was in the 90s. Well, the, the, the real restoration the last time was in 1976. It has quite a checkered history, the Night Watch. It has always been tremendously famous. Um, and in 1976, it was attacked by somebody with a knife. Yeah. Um, and and uh, it was then it then really needed uh, restoration. 
but now the the retouching which was used so the paint which was used to restore the painting um, started to discolor and the painting has a kind of white haze that appeared over the over the lower part of the painting and we want to understand what that is to um, you can do that now with techniques that you couldn't dream of um, in the 1970s when it was restored the last time. Um, scanning techniques. At that time, we were able to make an, an X-ray, which shows basically um, where lead white is used. Um, but now we have um, not only X-ray, we have um, we, we we can make um, infrared photographs of it. We can have an XRF, it's called scanning technique, which localizes the pigments, the different pigments used without having to take a sample. But those techniques also, those scanning techniques, um, are, as they accumulate such a huge amount of data, they're also very slow. So the first, the first um, scanning that will take place with XRF will take um, about seven months to scan the entire painting. Right. And it does it really in very minute detail. And after that, we will have um, different visual images, mappings of, um, of, the, um, of the geography, one could say, of the, of the painting. One of the things I'm struck by is obviously there's, a, there's enormous public interest in this behind-the-scenes activity. People love stuff like restoration. But also, for instance, um, there's a very well-known picture of Holbein's Ambassadors, that great picture in the National Gallery, when it's in its sort of yeah. clean state and you can see the losses. Are you prepared for sort of a bit of public consternation around, around the losses when you see when it will be stripped back and the retouchings are removed before it's retouched again? Um, I, so I presume you'll want, you'll want to set up a dialogue with the public about what's happening to the painting. Well, it was fascinating that in the 1970s, I remember it um, as a child, I think it was eight years old, um, the restoration was done also behind glass, but they had curtains. So every time when they were actually working, the curtains were closed. And only at the times when they wanted the public to see, they opened the curtains. And I think we now live in a different, in a different time, and we should keep the curtains open. And um, I think the public has a right to know what happens with the painting as it belongs to the public. And um, I think as long as you show everything, uh, the public can follow it also step by step. And that will, that will help people understand what has happened in the past with the painting. But it also helps them to understand if there are losses, why these losses are there, how you can restore them. So, um, and I'm not afraid of, of, of the consternation and everything you do, anything you do with the night watch, um, it attracts a lot of attention. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, one, one shouldn't be, one shouldn't be afraid of that attention. I think it's, it's, it's part of the, uh, it's part of the, um, success of the painting and a conservation process uh, needs to be documented. And I think it's good to document it for everybody. Now, uh, before the Night Watch begins being restored, you are going to include it in this extraordinary exhibition, which is called All the Rembrandts in the Rijksmuseum. And uh, tell me about that show, because it is, it is the first time where you're essentially putting everything you own by Rembrandt into an exhibition. 
Well, to celebrate the 350th um, anniversary uh, of the death of Rembrandt, um, we felt we every every time in the Netherlands, that's really a moment in it's really a moment that's marked. Um, and the last time in 1969, there was a large Rembrandt exhibition with lots of loans, etc. And this time we felt with the museum being completely renovated, it's the first time that we that we celebrate Rembrandt in this in this in this new Rijksmuseum. We felt we should show everything we have because the Rijksmuseum has the largest holdings of Rembrandt in the world and also the most representative from his smallest friendship portrait um, to his largest, most ambitious painting, The Night Watch. We have the only still life he painted, one of his very few landscapes he painted. So you can really, you really get an overview. And when you step into the exhibition, you don't really step into an exhibition room, but you step into Rembrandt's life. Um, and especially with Rembrandt, that's the case because he's the first artist who depicts the world around him, the everyday life around him, um, starting with himself and endlessly studying himself. I think there's no artist in the um, in the, uh, the history of art before the 20th century who made so many self-portraits, um, and then depicting his his uh, family, his friends. He goes on to the street and is, is interested in the in the rural side of um, of street life, so beggars and popers. Um, and he's not interested at all in architecture. So there's, he goes into the street but only depicts people. Um, and after the death of Saskia, his first wife, he starts to go on long walks and he starts to do his first landscape um, etchings, drawings and very few uh, paintings, as I said. And he has this capacity of making the everyday um, extraordinary. And on the other hand, as a storyteller, he makes the extraordinary biblical scenes and scenes from ancient history. He makes them every day. So um, where, for example, there's a, a wonderful late action where you see um, the uh, adoration of the shepherds which is um, usually depicted as a kind of monumental uh, scene where the shepherds are in awe of the newborn Christ. And what Rembrandt does, he makes it into an everyday um, uh, visit to a newborn. So I think that it's so recognizable because he brings it so close to our time uh, that these biblical stories become... Um, become something that is uh, that you really feel that you're living the, the most extraordinary thing it seems to me about Rembrandt is that as you say he's able he's uh, he's equally adept at an intimate portrait of a child and a grand like we'd call them history paintings or uh, or, or a mythological scene but equally that that's the same in terms of his language he's equally adept at the grand gesture with with oil paint and the minute precision and elegance of of an etched line are you able to show that very closely i.e are there etchings alongside paintings and that kind of thing etchings paintings drawings they're all hanging together they're not separated which is also relatively new because usually also in research the paintings are researched by by specialists in remnant paintings the etchings by specialists in etchings and the drawings by specialists in drawings where it's one man who made 
all these different uh, works of art. So what we've tried is to is to combine the research and to really show, um, to, to give a glimpse of Rembrandt, the artist, his life, and and the effect also his life had on his painting and etchings and drawings and vice versa. I think that he is equally um, adept at at um, painting and drawing and etching monumental scenes, but the strength of Rembrandt is that he he brings the monumentality of, for example, and Christ shown to people, he, he turns it into a, um, a scene that is happening now um, every day. And I think that that's something um, uh, which is really uh, his strength, that you, you it's the emotion that he he evokes by bringing it so close to us, and I think that that's something. That's something. Also, I was always wondering why is it that the night watch, um, when you stand in front of it, a lot of people say, well, it's very important, it's very big, but it 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 doesn't give me any kind of uh, feeling or emotion. And I think that's exactly um, what Rembrandt wanted. I mean, the Night Watch is a painting which is about civic pride and it's about um, monumentality and it's about it's about strength of these civic guards who protect the city. And that's also what it inspires in you as a viewer. It's a feeling of pride and a feeling of awe where when you go to the Jewish Bright, which is, I think, the greatest, uh, the greatest testimony of, of love that was ever painted, um, it has this very intimate and very, uh, it really, it really straight hits you um, in the heart. And when you look at the syndex, which is this uh, scene basically of a boardroom and man going over the annual reports, that is in that provokes the emotion of of um of solidity it really feels as if these are the, are the men who um who are very wise and very good at uh, at governing so he every every painting but also every etching provokes exactly the emotion that rembrandt uh wanted i think and he does that with a very in a very clever way you could call that kind of what we nowadays call audience participation. He always makes us part as the audience of his um of his composition. For example, there's a in the show there's a fascinating small very small print of a of a woman um peeing behind a tree. And when you look at it closely, um you see that she's sitting in front of a tree, so for others meant to be behind the tree and she's looking to the side of her think as if being very careful not to be seen by anybody so she's looking she's on the watch seeing is somebody coming um, but at the same time she doesn't realize that we as the, as the viewer look straight into uh, under her dresses so that's the kind of playing with the with the audience with the viewer um, to really engage them into into the moment uh, which he, he depicts, and he does that everywhere. With the syndics, for example, you see these men sitting behind a uh, behind a boardroom table, and it, it feels as if one of them is getting up 
and looking. They're all looking at us, and one is one of us of them is getting up. And it is that exact moment that you have that you go into the wrong into the wrong meeting room. Uh, you open the door. Everybody kind of looks up. One gets up saying, "Well, what are you doing here?" And then you close the door again. So it's again this playing with the 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 audience, the, um, engaging the audience into into his composition um, that makes it so real. I wanted to ask about his. Um, he's an extraordinary painter in terms of the way he revisits motifs he revisits scenes he will turn again to the same biblical scene etc and really revivify that scene are you it seems to me that by showing all of the works you're really able to reflect that way he revisits his his previous works and reinvents them yeah you can one can do a show in two ways a monographical show on, on Rembrandt and one is um, chronologically and we decided not to do it uh, chronologically. That that's, has happened very often, the chronological order. We wanted to really show the themes that Rembrandt tackles. Um, and on the one hand, he's an observer. He makes all these portraits, paintings, observing. On the other hand, he's a storyteller, which he does in his, in his depictions of the Bible or of ancient history. Um, what's fascinating, what you see then, when you see these, when you organise it by themes, is that although Rembrandt's early work is very um, different in handling than his late work, I mean Rembrandt is is called the first fine painter because he starts to really paint every detail when he's in his twenties, and later on in his life, in the late Rembrandt, he paints with a very broad brushstrokes and is very economic um, in his in his paint and you could compare it with 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 all the people who sometimes need very few words to to say something Mm -hmm. and he needs very few lines to say something and it's mostly about the, the the white spaces in between so the way of telling it um changes but the pictorial problems he sets himself which is really depicting as realistic as possible and depicting the raw truths um, that continues and that's really and you see how uh, the use of light how to create movement how to create depth um, how to create emotion um, or the depiction of the soul as they called it at that time those are themes that he he that you see early on in his work, and they continue to later on in his work. But he does get this 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 emotional baggage through through his dramatic life um, that you can really see reflected in his in his late work, and an enormous technical uh, change. Um, with painting with a broader and also etching was was a kind of um, much broader way of of uh, of building the composition. I have to say I can barely contain my excitement about Rembrandt Velasquez later in the year, um, and everything that you were just saying there about about Rembrandt's later work and the, and and the economy of language and all that kind of thing also applies to Velázquez. It seems to me that this is going to be a, an extraordinary show. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Well, I think Rembrandt and Velázquez are the two greatest 
portrait painters ever. Every portrait with Rembrandt really renders the individuality. And in that sense, it's also a tribute to mankind. We're all different. And Velasquez does exactly, um, exactly the same. And I think they're also both very unforgiving. But at the same time, because they really paint the, the, the raw truth, where although with Velasquez, it's usually people from the court, with Rembrandt, he, he, he depicts burgers and he, and he looks for the rough side of our, of our life. But um, they, are, they are looking for the truth and they're not really about beauty. And I think that that's what makes them so, uh, so much of today as well, because it's, it's, it's not about the beauty. It's, it's, they depict how we are as humans in all our imperfections. And it's these imperfections that make us human, but it, they also, by depicting it and by painting it, they basically say it's okay to be imperfect. And I think that that creates this, this um, bond between us nowadays and the viewer nowadays and Rembrandt. It's, it's okay. I mean, he was, he was a man who was an ugly, what you say in Dutch, an ugly potato nose, and he had lots of wrinkles and everything, <laughs> and it's okay. He depicts himself. He makes his selfies, and he makes his own. He, 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 he depicts his mother, who looks as, I've never seen a figure with so many wrinkles, and um, but it's all right. And I think that that's what makes it so strong. He, he, he depicts our, our uh, imperfections with a, with a tremendous intimacy and tenderness. One of the things about bringing Rembrandt and Velasquez together is that you, in a sense, you're also able to point to the differences, both in the sense that, as you say, Velasquez was pr- primarily a court artist and his work really existed in within the court and he made a portrait of the Pope, for instance. But Rembrandt had a much more public role and had a certain amount of international fame, but also, of course, in the fact that they're from countries that are at war for much of their lives. So do, can you point to that kind of that sort of social background as part of the show, or is it very much about a kind of formal exploration of the, of both Rembrandt and Velasquez and the Dutch and Spanish scenes? Well, it's Rembrandt and Velasquez are the prot- protagonists, but there's also a wonderful the, the little street by Vermeer and Velasquez's uh, view in the Meiji Garden, which are both, in a sense, portraits of of um, of topographical exact uh, spots, and they both depict um, decay as well. With with Velasquez, it's this uh, monumental balustrade of the Meiji Gardens that's boarded up with pieces of wood, and with um, Vermeer, it's a, it's a house in Delft with with plaster that falls off and it's kind of rickety. Hmm. And I think that. We also will show Sandradam, the the church of Assendelf, which is this very stern, white um, Protestant church, and the very stern and direct Angus Dei by Zurbaran from the Prado. And that basically um, embodies what the exhibition is about and what the two countries which were at war and, and there was hardly any Spanish painting in the Netherlands, and no Dutch painting um, of uh, in in Spain. 
except from the from the Italianate Dutch painters. Um, and what it really is about in both countries, it's about um, trying to depict things as lifelike as possible, so realism and religion. In Spain, it's everything is religion, but the Catholic religion. In the Netherlands, everything is religion, but religious, but the Protestant uh, religion. So, by not making uh, depictions of of uh, of Mary and of Jesus and of saints in churches, the Dutch painters look elsewhere. But it's not that they weren't religious. Um, so, I think they, that that kind of um, dialogue between two countries who go in such a different direction religiously but are both seeking to to paint as re as realistic as possible um, will be fascinating and it's fascinating that two countries as war have exactly at the same time their golden age in painting that's right and 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 that extraordinary fact that it seems impossible that two of the greatest portraitists of all time were working together and yet we think had no knowledge of each other right i mean it's possible that there were etchings by rembrandt that might have traveled to spain but we don't think that Velas they ever came into um velasquez's life no no they must have known of each other but they never saw each other's works and i think that's why it's such an exciting uh, meeting because it's a meeting of two giants in art um, who were basically uh, doing the same thing at the same time, never met, um, but made these incredible uh, portraits of humanity. Taco, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. All the Rembrandts in the Rijksmuseum continues until the 10th of June and Rembrandt Velasquez opens on the 11th of October and runs until the 19th of January next year. A version of the show at the Prado in Madrid opens on the 25th of June and continues until the 29th of September. We'll be back talking in depth about a particular Rembrandt painting and a selection of his drawings and prints after this. Artists reach their peak at different times, so it's fascinating that the acclaimed British artist Lynette Yadamboachi emerged from art school with her work almost fully formed. An early painting of hers, Sack from 2005, is one of the highlights of Bonham's post-war and contemporary art sale on March the 6th. It shows a man sitting upright in bed leaning against a pillow. As with all Boachi's paintings, it's not painted from life, but from her interior dreamscape, as Rachel Spence points out in Bonham's magazine, a painting that plugs us back into a collective artery of private emotion and experience. With its complexity of colour and light, often contrasted with simplicity and shape, this is a work that, for Ralph Taylor, Bonham's global head of contemporary art, reaffirms the value of the medium of painting. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Now, among the best Rembrandt paintings in England is Girl at a Window, a painting from 1645, when Rembrandt was at the height of his fame. It's in the collection of the Dulwich Picture Gallery, a small but marvellous museum in South London, with one of the greatest collections of old masters in Britain. The gallery will host the UK's most significant show of the Rembrandt anniversary year, and so I went to Dulwich to meet Jennifer Scott, the gallery's director, in front of Girl at the Window, to talk about the form and content of this remarkable work. Jennifer, we're standing in front of what is this gallery's most popular 
artwork, is that right? That's right. And doesn't she just radiate from the wall? She's got such a pull. I see visitors looking frantically for her as they walk around Dulwich Picture Gallery. She's such a star here. So we're look- she's a girl at a window. What do we know about either the sitter or Rembrandt's intentions with this work? <laughs> well, we know it all by anecdote, interestingly, and we just have to use our eyes to sort of decipher what's going on in the painting. Um, her title, which is the famous title, is Girl at a Window, but arguably she's Girl at a Ledge. She might not even be at a window, she's just leaning on a stone ledge. So when we use our eyes simply to analyse the painting, that's as much as we can know about it. We have no idea who she is, but we do know from anecdotes that this was a pretty important painting. So Roger de Peel, who was a French painter um, and writer, he noted down an account about this painting that Rembrandt set it into the window of his house in Amsterdam, and that people, as they walked past, were shocked that this girl had been sitting there for so long and needed to get back to work. Perhaps she was a servant girl and she should get back to work. And from that anecdote, I suppose, it really reveals the idea that Rembrandt was so good at painting that he captures life itself. He can trick you into believing his paintings are real. There's, there's, that aliveness is present in so many of the details, isn't it? I mean, in terms of... Let's talk about the painting of the face because it is so extraordinary and so vivid and the colours are so gorgeous. Tell us about about what he's doing there. I mean, for me, this is everything that is the best of Rembrandt. It is layered, so the way he's using his paint and applying it thickly in the face area allows it to have the textures that make it feel so real. But the thing that really is the making of this painting for me is the little fleck of white paint on the tip of her nose. That is everything in this painting. That's what transforms it from one of the great Rembrandts into one of the absolute best Rembrandts. The mastery of the thing. He's got the little pink touches of um, paint on her cheeks, the intensity of her gaze, the turn of her face so that the angle is so compelling. But that fleck of paint on her nose, it sort of is a dazzling moment within the painting. And actually, he wrote, we've got a few letters, seven letters by Rembrandt. And one of the things he said in one of the letters, he was worrying about how his works were going to be displayed. And he said, please make sure that they sparkle. Hang them in a place where they can sparkle. And I think little details like that fleck of paint is him allowing us to see what he means. That he wants people to be able to see that so that this work really sparkles. Rembrandt is famously a, a painter of extremes of light, of, of wonderful darkness and these, these figures looming out of that darkness. But one of the things that strikes me looking at this picture is the subtlety in the colouring. For instance, there's a sort of, um, is it beading in her hair or something that's tying her hair, which is a beautiful dark red. And then also in the face, you've pointed out those pinks, there's a sort of an orange, there's, there's yellows. The subtlety of colours in Rembrandt is something which is, I think in some ways underplayed in lots of the descriptions of his work. Yes, people think of him somehow as an artist of browns and this is something that we really want to address here at Dulwich Picture Gallery in the way that we interpret his work because he is thinking so carefully about colour and a lot of it with Rembrandt is instinctive but also he's put a lot of thought into it so that contrast there exactly as you say of the red which is actually the beading from her cap so she's got a little um, skull cap that's nestled into her curls on her hair mm-hmm. and then the tie of that comes down the back of her neck and then hangs across the top of her shoulder 
where the red contrasts with the white. And then it allows the white to have an even greater presence because of that contrast with the colours. And then in the background, what I love with this painting is when you see people really getting close to it, which is what you can do at Dulwich Picture Gallery. You can get really close to our paintings here and you can look at the background and see that it's not a simple grey or brown, but instead he's got gradations of colour. So that gives a sense that not only is there a slight recession of space, but also that it is being lit from behind the viewer. So the light is coming from behind us and striking the painting, which then gives this illusion of a recession into space. Again, a remarkable detail. And the thing that makes her so vivid is these details of her pose. She's playing with her necklace in this completely natural way it seems to me yes it's a very considered approach to conveying gesture Rembrandt has really thought about how her hands might be he has looked at models again and again and he creates the sense with that that she might be just about to gesture to us or to speak which is the thing that makes this painting have such a a vivid quality it really feels alive as if she is captured in a stillness that is about to lead to movement and also there's a sort of, an, sort of an ambiguity in her gaze, isn't there? So we aren't sure quite what she would say to us no. were she able to speak. And, and that's, again, a, a thing that really pulls you in. Why is she looking at us like that? What, 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 wow. what is it that she's, she wants to tell us? It's quite challenging. Some people say there might be something sexual about it, that she might be soliciting us. So she's leaning, she's playing coquettishly with the strings around her neck, and she might be about to beckon us to come inside. Now, that's a little concerning because she seems quite young. This yeah. is a teenage girl. But that is a possibility of what that gesture means. The other one might be that she is completely lost in thought. You know that moment when you, you're sort of looking at somebody, but actually your brain is resting and you're gazing past them, really, but they don't quite know that you are, and you're about to snap to attention? It might be like that. I look at her eyes a lot, and I'm wondering, is she really looking at me, or is she completely lost in her inner thoughts? And in a moment, she's going to notice me, but I, I don't matter as much to her as her inner thought process. Now, this painting will be the sort of starting point I believe for your show this autumn Rembrandt's light can you tell us more about it that's right we're really excited about it it's an exhibition which is for us the London moment for the Rembrandt year so it's the big anniversary 350 years since Rembrandt's death and here at Dulwich Picture Gallery with our exceptional works by Rembrandt we felt we had to mark that moment and this painting is going to be the star of the show and she's going to be joined by some really great companions so we've got loans coming a painting from the Rijksmuseum the Denial of St Peter which is the one painting that isn't in there all the Rembrandt's exhibition so we're so so thrilled and honoured to have that painting coming here to the gallery we've also got Philemon and Borkis a painting from the National Gallery of Art in Washington DC which for the first time ever is going to be displayed along the painting of the Supper of Emmaus from the Musée du Louvre in Paris. So we've got some real star paintings coming to join um, the girl at a window here at Dulwich Picture Gallery. And the exhibition is around Rembrandt's light. So we want to challenge this notion of Rembrandt simply being a master of light by saying, how? And in addressing that, we want to look at these, the key years, 19 years, when he lived in his house on the Brerstraat in Amsterdam. So that's between 1639 and 1658. And during that period, he was in the light. He was at his peak. He painted the night watch. He was much in demand. But towards the end of that period, that was when he lost everything financially. 
And so it's a really crucial moment in his life. And we want to look at what was so special about those moments. And actually, for me, it's the fact that he owned this house. He overstretched himself to buy his dream house, which had huge windows. So he had the perfect conditions for creating, manipulating light and teaching through light. And we knew, we know that he would block off parts of the windows. He would do light studies. He was constantly teaching how to capture different effects of light. And then here at Dulwich Picture Gallery, when Sir John Soane was designing the gallery, which opened to the public in 1817, it was completely innovative because of the top lighting. So here we have the ideal conditions for viewing light. And so we think it's perfect to put on a show that celebrates Rembrandt's light. That's it. I mean, we're actually standing beneath one of Soane's great windows, top lit in this gallery, looking at this great Rembrandt, you really feel that sort of evenness of daylight in this space, and it's so crucial, isn't it? And this is actually close to how Rembrandt would have seen these paintings when he was making them, using natural light in his studio. Completely, and we can forget how innovative that was. When Soane designed this building, it was the first of its kind. It's the world's first purpose-built public art gallery, and to be lit from above was something that in the early 19th century was thought to be a totally groundbreaking approach to viewing paintings. Because if you think about it, natural light is constantly changing. So as you look at the girl at a window, a cloud passes above and the conditions change. And that means that then these paintings have a vividness which Soane understood and which we still understand today. Because of that, within Rembrandt's Light, the exhibition, we want to look at different effects of light within each of the sections of the show and how they affect your mood as you look at paintings. So to achieve different moods within the exhibition, we've invited the cinematographer Peter Sujitsky to work with us to light the exhibition. If Rembrandt was alive today, he might have been a cinematographer rather than a painter. He tells stories through light, and for me, that is the heart of what a director of photography does on a film. And so we put this question to Peter Sujitsky and invited him to come in and work with us. And throughout the exhibition, we're going to be evoking different moods in each of the rooms of the show. And I think that does justice to what Rembrandt was doing within his works. It's going to be really interesting to see. Is is there a previous example where where a cinematographer photographer has worked on an exhibition I can't think of one no I can't think of one either and Peter Zuzitsky in his in his work he references the old masters he talks about how they've had such an effect on him and he's famous for his work with David Cronenberg he is David Cronenberg's cinematographer and also he's worked on other great films including Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back and for me that's brilliant that the old masters have informed films that are so familiar to us today but it's no surprise either Jennifer, thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. You can see Girl at the Window in the permanent collection at the Dulwich Picture Gallery and Rembrandt's Light opens on the 4th of October and will continue until the 2nd of February next year. More than 60 of Rembrandt's prints and drawings are currently on display at the British Museum in Rembrandt Thinking on Paper, a show including everything from sketches to fully worked up compositions. I went to the museum to talk to Elenka Horvatsch, the exhibition's curator. Elenka, like any Rembrandt exhibition, there are lots of self-portraits in this show. Can you? T- we're looking at two of the same image now, uh, of a very dashing-looking Rembrandt. Tell us where he's at at this point in his career. So we're looking at one of his um, best-known self-portraits. Prince. This is um, Rembrandt self-portrait leaning on a stone sill. He depicts himself in this um, 
wonderful historical costume. His contemporaries would have recognized this to be a slightly old-fashioned historical costume, this um, beret that he's wearing and um, an elaborate sort of fur robe. Um, he, he's inspired by Renaissance paintings, by the portraits of Titian, Raphael, and he deliberately depicts himself in this historical guise in emulation of these um, these these painters. Um, he, he does this print when he's 33 years old. He's sort of at the height of his fame in Amsterdam. And, um, this is in 1639. Mm, it's, um, it's a wonderful combination of um, the sort of the technical side of things, the way in which he depicts the individual hairs on his head, the furrowed brow, the very delicate um, lines that he achieves with the etching needle, and the texture on the robes is extraordinary. And together with this incredibly confident, self-assured expression, um, it's, it's really Rembrandt the virtuoso that we're looking at here. And near where we're standing on a wall, in fact, there are a, whole, whole, there are a host of other self-portraits. You've got everything from these wonderful character sketches to quite a sort of worked-up self-portrait portrait of, of Rembrandt at work? The, the later one um, of the, the artist at work is um, a wonderful departure from Rembrandt the gentleman. Later in the 1650s, he depicts himself in his own guise, wearing the artist's mock. In his hand, he holds um, the etching needle, and it appears as though he's looking at him, he's studying his own face. He shows himself in the process of making a self-portrait print. Um, so it's, a, it's an exploration of his different identities, who he wishes to be seen as, who he really is. That's wonderful. Let's move on to his portraits of women. Now, in front of us now, we're looking at several portraits of women, including his first wife, Saskia, and also his second common-law wife, Henrika. Um, the portrait of Henrika is one of the, I guess, the British Museum's most famous drawings. Am I right in saying that? Indeed. It, it's a familiar work to many um, it's probably one of the greatest drawings we have in the collection overall. Um, the sort of the delicacy that he achieves with just a few subtle flicks of the brush is nothing short of extraordinary. Um, that he suggests her features without detailing them. And this is, I think, a wonderful example of his stylistic shift. So this is one of his late works um, done in the 1650s when he's less interested in depicting um, every detail and more interested in evoking and suggesting. And um, this, this depiction of young woman sleeping, most likely Hendrikia Stoffels, um, you see especially towards the lower edge of the drawing, when he, it, the brushwork just opens up into this loose, sort of um, wonderful, um, vibrant sort of um, lines. Um, it's almost calligraphic, isn't it? Exactly. Um, but when you, when you study her body, when you study the drawing, every single line that is there describes the, the, the shape in space. Um, so it's this wonderful... Um, sort of contrast between suggestion and detail and yet next to next to her is Saskia as portraying the, the Jewish bride and in in that we see the, the complete opposite in a way and this again it's a it's an etching and dry point and therefore you see this incredible detail really vivid detail 
he, he often depicted um, both Saskia in, and Hendrika in various guises, as well as studying them in intimate moments. So we have another a pen and ink drawing of Saskia in bed. She was um, bedridden and ill um, for long bouts of her life. Um, so there's this group of drawings um, that he does, various studies of her in bed. And then he, he takes up her visage and incorporates it into a historical scene from the Old Testament. Um, this particular impression on view is unfinished, so this is one that he, um, he worked through several states to complete the very intricate, um, detailed technique. And that's to give you a sense of his working process. How did the print look before it was complete, completed? Um, how many times did he resubmerge it in acid um, to achieve the extraordinary range of tones? Um, that he does. Um, so this is a sort of from his mid-period, from the 1630s, um, stark contrast to um, the sort of the economy of line that he, he's known for in his late works. It's one of the things that's lovely about this show is that you really feel you're getting to see Rembrandt at works because there's so many of the etchings that are in different states so you get to see them at different levels of finish and likewise the drawings, some of them are very worked, some of them are really sketchy. Was that a real intention that you wanted to give a feel of the artist's sort of process? Absolutely, that's, that's very much at the heart of the show. It's his creative process on paper um, and various um, degrees of completion um, are on display and in some ways, um, having so many different states, many unfinished, and then also um, final versions that can seem unfinished, especially in his later years, it sort of it opens up or it queries the concept of finish. Um, what we as a modern audience might assume is unfinished is in fact signed and dated, which is usually a good indication that it is ready to go, and that's very common with his late prints especially. Um, so seeing, seeing him at work, seeing things in various degrees, of completion, um, works in progress. Um, the wonderful thing about printmaking, and especially Rembrandt's prints, is that through printing um, sequential or progressive states, it lays out the working process in ways that other media doesn't or can't. So, for example, if you have different painting campaigns, you only see the final one. You would need x-rays to see what transpired underneath. But with printing subsequent states, it's a, real, it's a wonderful sort of glimpse into the process. And of course, Rembrandt exploits this idea more than any other printmaker in his day and markets and starts selling these unfinished proofs. We also have an insight into Rembrandt, the teacher of drawing in, in this exhibition. Let's go and have a look at that work. So what we have here is an anonymous life study. We don't know who made it, but we do know that Rembrandt intervened after the first stage of the process. This is a wonderful story. Tell us about it. Um, so this is the only work in the exhibition not by Rembrandt himself. It is by a pupil in his studio, and um, throughout the 1640s, he, he had many, many pupils um, whom he instructed, many who became um, successful artists in their own right. In this particular case, we're not sure... Um, which pupil it was. Um, and this life study shows a man standing, and we know that Rembrandt organized these life drawing sessions for his pupils um, in Amsterdam. And interestingly enough, we can pinpoint the exact sort of session, the exact drawing session. Um, 
from which this drawing originates, um, because there are two others in um, in other collections that show the same model from different angles by other pupils of Rembrandt. Um, and then to sort of to complete the picture, um, we have this etching on view beside the drawing by Rembrandt himself of the same model. So he's there too, but while his students are drawing on paper, he's drawing directly onto the plate, onto the prepared copper plate um, with an etching needle. And to do so, you need extreme, an extreme sureness of touch. You need to know what you're doing because it's difficult, if not impossible, to correct mistakes. Um, so to go back to this drawing that we're looking at, um, his pupil renders this um, life study, uh, this nude man standing, and we know that Rembrandt went in and corrected this drawing with these very sort of broad and quick, decisive strokes of the reed pen. We know this, we can compare it with um, his, his marks on other works. And it's this wonderful moment that lays out Rembrandt the teacher. He, you can almost imagine him peering over his student's shoulder and um, with the sort of the equivalent, the modern day equivalent would be perhaps the red editing pen to kind of add in a few strokes here and kind of make the background more convincing, um, articulate the arm in space in a more convincing manner. Now as well as really informal and sketchy works, there are some of his sort of really quite grand prints in the exhibition. Tell us about the one that we're looking at. So we're looking at one of his late dry points of Christ presented to the people, a scene also known as Ecce Homo. It's that sort of decisive moment of judgment in the Passion narrative when Pontius Pilate presents Christ to the people to cast judgment. And this belongs to uh, Rembrandt's most experimental prints in that he introduced a sort of radical change throughout the subsequent states. So there's um, two two states are on view to, to illustrate the change and to show just what a experimental approach Rembrandt takes here. And in, in the first state, we have Christ is almost difficult to see. He's lost in sort of um, a crowd. There's a large crowd gathered below, and he's standing on the podium, and he's presented with several figures alongside. And this is very much intentional, of course, and this idea, this focus on the crowd you sort of your eye meanders throughout um, throughout this large composition you notice various reactions from the crowd some are pointing some are looking some are looking away and it's this idea of recognition and um, perhaps not seeing what you should be seeing so because Rembrandt does um, this print entirely in dry point, this is a very delicate medium that wears out very quickly. So he had to um, go back to the plates. Um, but he doesn't just um, re-etch, or he doesn't just um, re do the composition, he introduces radical changes. So through a series of um, eight states, he and we're looking at a later um, state here, he burnishes away the entire crowd. And this is sort of a radical, um, a radical change in the composition. It also it casts the viewer in a very different role. Suddenly, we are implicated. We are standing in front of the podium where Christ is presented, and the question that was asked to the crowd is now sort of asked of us—a um, question, a decisive question of judgment in in the Passion narrative. Um, What's remarkable about this impression here on Japan paper is that it's quite a messy impression. You can you can even see a fingerprint in the upper um, in the upper 
register um, on the architecture. And this is another wonderful example of sort of the artist at work. Um, he's experimenting with different papers, different inking methods, with the limits and the possibilities of what dry point can do. And this wonderful idea that it wasn't always about making things pristine or brilliant. It was the, the idea that um, the slight messy aesthetic that we might think would be undesired, that this is something that doesn't bother him at all, and this is something that I think um, is a very revealing glimpse into into his creative process. I think what's remarkable about it is that by removing the crowd, mm-hmm. the space shifts so completely that I, when I was looking at it, I had to keep double-checking that actually are the figures in the same space, and they are, and yet just by removing the crowd, by sort of raising this platform a little, and by creating this sort of void at the front of the image, suddenly we are in the middle of it, and the space is shifted. This mm-hmm. is the kind of... We know of Rembrandt as a portraitist, and we know about his abilities in terms of the kind of close space, but actually we don't hear much about this brilliant ability to shift grand spaces, to shift architectural space in this way, and it's a kind of really dramatic effect, I think. Absolutely. I I think that's an excellent point. Um, And the idea that with removal of the crowd, your entire sort of focus, your entire um, perspective changes too. Um, I think that says so much about him as a storyteller. It's not just the narrative, it's the relation between the figures, the space, the viewer, absolutely. He is a complete artist. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rembrandt, thinking on paper, is at the British Museum in London until the 4th of August. Now, there are countless other Rembrandt events in this anniversary year. Here are just a few of the others. In the US, Life in the Age of Rembrandt, Dutch masterpieces from the Dordrecht Museum, is at the Columbus Museum of Art until the 16th of June. Dutch painting in the Age of Rembrandt is at the St. Louis Art Museum from 20th of October until the 12th of January next year. In the UK, Rembrandt in print is at the Lady Lever Art Gallery in Liverpool from the 1st of June until the 15th of September and at the Holborn Museum in Bath from 4th of October until the 5th of January next year. Inevitably, there are lots of exhibitions in the Netherlands, including Rembrandt and the Maritz House at the Maritz House in The Hague until the 15th of September and several exhibitions at the Rembrandt House Museum in Amsterdam, Rembrandt Social Network until the 19th of May, inspired by Rembrandt, 7th of June to the 1st of September and Laboratory Rembrandt, 21st September to 16th of February next year. Young Rembrandt, 1624-1634, is at the Stedelijk Museum de Lachenhal in Leiden, which is, of course, the artist's birthplace. And one other notable exhibition is Rembrandt Vermeer and the Dutch Golden Age at the Louvre Abu Dhabi until the 18th of May. And finally, if you want to read more about Rembrandt, do check out Simon Sharma's latest article about Rembrandt at theartnewspaper.com. And that's all for this week. If you haven't subscribed already, please do so. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or iTunes as it helps others to find us. You can follow us and tell us what you think on Twitter at Tan Audio. And you can find The Art Newspaper on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, of course. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly print edition of The Art Newspaper, you can do so at subscribe.theartnewspaper.com. The producers of The Art Newspaper podcast are Julia Machowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor. Thanks to Taco, Jennifer and Alenka, and thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next week. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.